2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey,
1: hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's our 14th year on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, I'm the host, and we'll be talking with Two great guests who are also authors and advanced tasters. So let's go around the room. Um, you guys introduce yourselves. Start with Mandy.
3: Hi, I'm Mandy Neglitch. I am the author of How to Taste, which is either about to come out or has just come out when you guys are listening to this. Um, I am also a food and beverage journalist, a cocktail judge, and certified in several different tasting mediums. So lots to talk about with taste.
1: Wow. Well, I'm so happy about you this book and really looking forward to talking with you and Em.
4: Uh, I'm Em Sutter. I'm the founder and cartoonist behind Pints and Panels, which is a website where uh, you can learn all about beer in a cartoony format. I'm also an advanced sister like you said, uh, an author of two books and an international beer judge. I also co-host the All About Beer podcast.
1: Great. Well, let's spotlight each of you and just talk a little bit about how you got you know, where you are and the, the books that you wrote and everything. So, Mandy, this is a big deal. How to taste that. I, I met you a couple of years ago and you were on the, the advanced Cicerone track. T- tell me about the book and the, the process. And, you know, was it a discovery process for you by writing the book?
3: Yeah, I think actually when we met, I was on the master Cicerone track at the time, which, as you can see, I'm still an advanced <laughs> Cicerone, so... <laughs> shifted a little bit. But um, yeah, a lot of uh, that practice going into both advanced and master Cicerone is focused on tasting. So doing practice tasting taught me a lot about not just tasting beer, but tasting everything. And as I got curious about different mediums, things like cheese, honey, cider, I uh, started talking to other professionals who were professional tasters. And one of them, my friend Olivia Haver, who's down at the Farm at Doe Creek making cheese said, Oh, that's so cool that you're a Cicerone. I could never do that. But she's a certified cheese professional. And I was like, I think you certainly could. Like with your palate, if you learned about a little bit about beer, she knows about fermentation already. Um, and it really started to show me that there's so many professionals, there's so many people who are interested in taste. But really, once you train your palate, there's a ton of crossover between specialties. And it doesn't need to be a book about tasting whiskey, a book about tasting wine. It can really be about tasting everything. and that kind of set me on the the
1: journey. So I have Olivia to thank for sure. Wow, that's great. It's really cool. It says, How to Taste a Guide to Discovering Flavor and Savoring Life. So like, what's an intro tasting thing that people might go through? I mean, is it just learning how to savor, you know, that really well-made piece of bread you had? Or, you know, what, what are some of the conversations that, that you have with people about your book?
3: Yeah. So the book starts with kind of the science of our senses. So just scientifically what's happening when we're tasting, how are messages moving from your nose and your mouth into your brain? How does your environment affect what you're tasting? You know, loud music at a restaurant really is going to have an impact on what you're tasting. Um, as Em and I know, you know, doing a, a test taking situation for tasting really lets you focus. Um, so it moves into that. It moves into a, a complete, uh, Tasting method in the middle of the book that goes from every single sniff you'll take every sip swirl taste on anything from honey to olive oil um, and then kind of ends with some fun ways once you've trained yourself as a taster how does that change your life how could you travel better for taste how can you think about memory and taste how can you relate your health to uh, the status of your taste so Really, kind of takes you on a full journey from inside your mouth to training your mouth to taking it out into the world.
1: <laughs> well, that's great. And, Em, a little bit more about you, how how you went from uh, being that amazing cartoonist to having a book and being an advanced cicerone.
4: Yeah. So, I just always loved beer, and I've been drawing since I was four. Um, I went to art school. I graduated in 2011 from the Center for Cartoon Studies, which is a cartooning program in Vermont. It is a real place. Um, And then went into the beer world, worked at a couple breweries, worked uh, at a beer store. And actually, when the pandemic hit, Pints and Panels, I had a little time to focus on, all right, what what do I want to do with my website? Because actually, Pints and Panels was around since 2010. Uh, it was a beer review site, and uh, my first book, uh, "Beers for Everyone," came out in twenty seventeen. And so, during the pan, like the early lockdown part of the pandemic, I started really leaning towards the education side. And since everyone was learning and trying to, you know, do better for the most part, and also stay inside and stay healthy, uh, Pints and Panels took off a little. And now that's where I wholly divert all my focus to is visual beer education. The website is free, one hundred percent free to use. So you can find information about everything from how to clean draft lines to styles to silly infographics. Today is uh, beers paired with characters from The Office. That my uh, sister, who's an office, yeah, it was my sister. I I came up with the pairings. My sister Abby is a real Office super fan. Actually, my husband, uh, the reading at her wedding was a scene from The Office. (laughs) (laughs) My my husband read. well, we were on the beach because they got married. Are on the they beach. Jim and Pam? And, uh, what
1: what roles do they play?
4: They're uh, they're uh, why well, I want mean, They probably Jim and Pam. Well, Pam. A lot of people don't like Pam. Um, so, but ever, but everyone likes my sister. She's very nice. So, and I like my sister a lot. We're family. So, um, she was very helpful in here. Here are the IPA choices I'm thinking. And she was like, "Oh, I don't know about that." And then her husband Eddie chimed in and. It, it's fun to now that Pints and Panels is growing slightly, I really like collaborating with I've been collaborating with a lot of people from Central and South America to do Argentinian food pairings. I'm actually learning a lot because I don't I've never been to Argentina and so there are beer styles they have and food pairings obviously they have that I've never had. So it's been really collaborative to team up with people to go, Hey, how would you pair with this and why? And so it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun and now uh My second book came out last year and, you know, just lots of little things, lots of little projects. I just started writing for Forbes.com last, actually today was my first article. So there's a lot, there's a lot. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And they're letting me use my art, which I was amazed. I was like, can I use my art when I write for you? And they were like, we love it. Perfect. Yeah. They better let you use it. Come on. (laughs) I know. And I was like, I own it too, right? Because that's very important to me when you're an artist. Uh, you gotta protect your stuff, and so it's just yeah, it's been fun. And I've known Mandy for a few years now. We we studied for the Master Cicerone together. Obviously, we both aren't Master Cicerones, but that doesn't mean we both aren't incredibly smart and you know well intentioned, good beer tasters. And I'm really really excited. I just pre ordered Mandy's book this morning, and I cannot yeah, we wait. Have some, uh, right. some book events coming down the road too that, that we're going to
3: do together. Yeah,
4: so. so we get to work together, which is very very fun.
3: Yes, and we're both, we're rooting for all the future uh, female Master Sister owns, which we know are out there studying right now too. Yes. do. We're, we're not, we're not accompanying them on the study <laughs> trail anymore, but mm-hmm. in, in spirit behind them, rooting them on. We're for there sure. for them.
1: Well, for, for the book launch, I mean, this will probably be out right before June 27th, but most people will, will listen to it over the next couple of weeks. Um, what are some mm-hmm. of the first book launch events? Are they in person or are they part of a tasting, you know, program?
3: Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited because um, I have a lot of friends who are authors. I've actually co authored a cookbook, and I know it's pretty rough um, book events that are kind of just reading or talking based. So, all of my book events are based with tasting. Everyone will have something to taste at everything we do. Uh, the kickoff is going to be at Archistratus. We're doing kind of like a cheese board tasting, you know, pairing many flavors together and talking about that. And then we're having a launch party at Talea in Cobble Hill on the 29th. Um, so that's gonna be fun. Obviously that one's a beer tasting and a little more party focused. Uh, and then, yeah, we're, I'm touring all over the East coast. So we're doing events at Allagash, uh, Sam Adams, um, some places out on Cape Cod this summer. We're going out to Montauk. So all the events are on howtotastebook.com, but, uh, bouncing all over tasting things. We're going to do an oyster tasting out in Montauk. So you know like I said the book applies to everything so
1: so let's let's take your book and 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 talk about those tastings so it's like oyster even though it's almost too too far into the summer it's oysters (laughs) and so what what are you going to do uh related to your book and oyster tasting you have some pairings are you going to do exercises let's 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 get us interested in the book
3: yeah. So, I mean, chapter four is based on a six-step tasting method that you can follow with everything, including oysters, um, which starts, you know, looking at your setting as well as the thing that you're tasting. So, you know, if we have three different kinds of oysters lined up, they will appear three different ways. The setting we're in in Montauk, it would definitely be different than, you know, if we were in L.A. or something like that. Um so that's like kind of your C step taking in the book goes into each sense and what you're kind of taking in, in your environment. Um, next, I mean, M can chime in here too, as training for master Cicerones and current advanced Cicerones, we learned very like many different, um, sniffing techniques from really short explosive sniffs to going all the way through the retronasal sniff, which is kind of using the back of your nose to sniff. Um, so we would walk through all of those, uh, There's other sniffs that we picked up from interviewing some cheese tasters and an olive oil taster too. So kind of going through all the ways to use your nose, Um, going into the three different kinds of tastes that professional tasters typically do, which is your match taste, seeing if it's your aroma matches the flavor of of your oyster, which this medium, it typically doesn't. You typically don't get a lot of that sweetness and kind of I guess, uh, meatiness of an oyster in the aroma. You're going to get a lot more brine and sea character. So that's your first taste. Your second taste is for mouthfeel, which obviously oysters, depending on firmness, sweetness, you know, how creamy they are, they will all three be different. And then moving into the last uh, taste, which is your aftertaste. And it's unpleasant and considered a bad characteristic if you have a very long aftertaste, especially a metallic one in an oyster. So we'll see, hopefully... I don't think we'll have any of those um, out on Montauk, but we'll be able to test through for all of those. Um, so yeah, moving through just like the, the full um, tasting method with all of those. And then also talking about different things that people might not realize about oysters. You know, there's um, tewa in something like wine, but then there's mewa in anything that's seafood-based because basically instead of a blood, oysters use seawater to use their circulatory system. So any of the water around them is flavoring they're delicious little bodies for us. Um, so just facts like that, um, which you can find throughout the book and use that chapter four
4: tasting method on anything.
1: Wow. Em, uh, I bet you have questions for, for Mandy about the book.
4: Oh my gosh. I, I, <laughs> I can't wait to read it.
3: Yeah. Em's going to be in town for the, uh, the Talaya book party. So I'm going to write a long inscription in her book.
4: For oh, sure. Shucks. I remember what? to bring it too. Cause I said it was going to be here right the day that it was released. And mm-hmm. then, um, we're actually going to do an event at RJ Julia bookstore in middle, their Middletown location in Connecticut. Cause I'm up in Connecticut on July 12th. And we're going to do a beer and chocolate pairing or Mandy's going to do a beer and chocolate pairing or chocolate tasting. And I'm going to hang out and wave to people and listen <laughs> to her expertise. Um, because I just, it's really fascinating about my focus is solely beer. You know, people ask me a lot like, Oh, do you do wine or spirits? And I was like, I wish I did. Cause then I'd be wealthier. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the side of the point. But beer, you know, beer is my whole focus and my passion. So, watching someone like Mandy, who has her hands in all sorts of different be it spirits and wine and tasting and oysters and chocolate and all sorts of stuff, it's really fascinating to see that the skills you learn when you drink and sniff and try beer can be pushed to almost any food you know, or drink and you learn a lot. So it's, it's, I'm really, really excited about, um, how long did the book take you to write Mandy? Um, that's a good question. I think it, I mean, from
3: the time I like actually had the book deal and started writing, it really only took about a year because so much of it was just expanding on what I'd been spending my whole life learning. (laughs) <laughs> um, I think second books. You can probably speak to this. I feel like second books take a lot longer to physically write because you have to start with a new idea. Where this is kind of like something I've been thinking about for a long time. It just had to actually get it down on on paper. Um, but yeah,
4: that's really cool. I mean, it yeah,
1: it's really well written. I mean, I'm 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 enjoying that. Like there's references to to James Beard Award winning chefs, and um, it sounds like you had a lot of fun writing this book.
3: Yeah, it was, it was cool. I got to kind of, you know, pick some some idols that I'm like, if I could get them in the book, that would be really cool. One of my favorite episodes of Top Chef is, um it's actually a Top Chef Masters where they blindfold all of these Michelin star chefs and um, James Beard award-winning chefs and make them, you know, do a completely blind tasting and some of them get way far off. And I was lucky for the book to get to talk to Rick Bayless about his experience Um Calling, I believe he called a mango guava or something like that, and hoisin sauce ranch. Like, really had some rough experiences on that. So it was fun to get yeah his point of view on blind tasting, and then talk to some master somms who obviously, you know, they could nail they could nail some mango tasting blind. Let, <laughs> so. Let's
1: talk about blind tasting because it is really hard. I mean, yeah. I, I've been to some parties where where they've had like the black glass, and I know that steel this beer. Um, that's that's one one of their signatures. Um, Mm -hmm. what happens when you can't see what you're drinking?
3: That's a good question. I mean, I think sometimes it actually helps you a little bit more. Um, you know, sometimes we see something that looks very dark, um, and it actually doesn't have those dark roasty flavors, but we kind of almost put them in the glass with our minds just because you see something dark, you're expecting ash, burnt chocolate, and sometimes it's not there. Um, so sometimes it can be helpful. Uh, other times with like things like red and white wine, it's actually a lot harder to tell those two things apart than people expect. So the black glass can be, um, quite frustrating and definitely eye-opening for people who consider themselves, you know, top wine tasters. It's an exercise that Rick actually does with his entire staff, um, as far as getting them to taste out of a black glass, just to remind them that their, their palates aren't, you know, as incredible as they might think. <laughs>
1: I remember one time years ago when I was just getting started, it was like kind of wine 101 and we had a blind tasting. And I, I just guess that this New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc because at the time the, the it, it, they always said, oh, if it, if it smells like grapefruit, <laughs> then it's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And, and that was the only time I ever nailed something. <laughs> nice. But, it, it i mean is it, do you have to have the cheats like that i mean is i mean cuz i i've done it and i'm like sometimes when it's if if i'm totally blind and i'm drinking something and i i don't know if it's been poured from a tap or a bottle you know it it could be a a wine a, a, a spirit or beer and 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 you 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 wouldn't know right away is that just me
3: no, I think that's definitely true. And something I've been doing recently um with friends, you know, who are professionals from all different areas of the food uh, industry. We've been doing like blind tasting things like vermouths and triple sex just to kind of get a rating on how sweet or floral we all think they are. And it's amazing, yeah, when you blind something, how your opinion changes. Um, I always thought I was a Contro girl, but I rated Grand Marnier very high and actually less sweet. So um, that was shocking to me, but, uh, and when you were practicing for, you know, advanced and master Cicerone, what, did, how did you go into blind tasting? Did you have cheats that you memorized at all or just repetition?
4: Uh, it was a lot of repetition. I had a really great, uh, beer store near my house, like brown bag, everything. Um, so I couldn't see everything or like. Well, you can... The, one of the cheats is sometimes when you're doing it by yourself. My, this, before the pandemic, my husband used to work at night. And so I'd be alone when, like, obviously I wasn't going to drink it, like, you know, when he was awake because <laughs> uh, it was, you know, 10 in the morning. So sometimes you could cheat by the feel of the... You would know by the feel of the can or the bottle what it was. So it was really hard to try to make sure that when you were drinking, you know, you there's certain flavor... I'm trying to think of any, like, if... No... I mean, color is a huge giveaway, right? huge, huge giveaway. And then you can kind of, if you know hop variety aromas and flavor, that's also kind of it. And then yeast, like if you're getting white pepper phenol, chances are it's a Belgian. Uh, Or if you're getting a lot of like like heavy esters and there's some like caramel malt and there's a floral or tea-like hoppiness, it's probably English. So once you know those, those kind of help. But at the same time, like, oh, I got a lot of them wrong. Most of them wrong. Um,
3: There's also, <laughs> like, I feel like just like we said from repetition, like, I can, you can put Sierra Nevada pale ale just, like, in the same room as me. And I can smell it and know that it's Sierra Nevada pale ale. Same thing with Chimay Red. That was the only one that I called on the test. Like, I was like, this is definitely a Chimay Red. I know it. And it
2: was... Mm. Um,
4: Oh, yeah i don't think i could ever taste a beer or like no maybe no i don't i'm also not great with like hops where people are like oh i really get the citra the in this and i'm like do you though because i like not that i'm a better taster than anyone else i'm i'm not um but i i really certainly can't pick out hop varieties as well as others so everyone has their you know how many people are blind to diacetyl or other off flavors um a lot of people have certain struggles Um, or just, you know, blinds that they will never get. And that's totally fine.
3: Well, and I think when it comes to calling a hop, that's really tough because it's basically the same bouquet of, say, 15 compounds that are just in different, you know, intensities and concentrations. So if you get a weird batch of citra, it's not going to be so different than some of the other newer hops, you know, Um, it's kind of crazy. I mean, that's like, yeah, writing this book, coming down to it, it's like the esters that we recognize in beer are the same ones that are in whiskey the same ones that are in honey even some of the same ones like some of the terpenes and stuff in olive oil are the same Hmm. flavors we're getting in hops so it's like being able to to describe something and name an aroma and then actually calling a hop I feel like are two one seems much more possible to me than the other
4: (laughs)
1: yeah hey Mandy you, you really go you cover a lot of things you talk about how would you what what would a, a dog know in the airport who's who's detecting you know um uh, you know th- things that shouldn't be in your bags to uh coffee and uh uh what was the what was something new that you learned from writing this book
3: yeah i think so bill simpson who is definitely i would say mine as well as many people who are focused on tasting beers uh tasting mentor uh interviewing for him this interviewing him for this book was very eye-opening to me because he really explained to me that when he's training us to taste he trains us like we're we're sniffer dogs like he's tra- training us to identify a compound not to like get esoteric and you know think about where the beer we're smelling fits into the wider mosaic of beers in the world. he really is trying to train us just like those dogs were trained they're sniffing for one compound in the case now it's usually uh, things in meats people, we're really worried about pig diseases. So all the beagles are trained to smell out meat in people's suitcases. Um, and he tra- trained us the exact same way. And even though I trained with him for, you know, close, you know, a couple of years, um, I never really realized that was his philosophy. I was just following him blindly to train my nose. So that was definitely something interesting.
1: That's really cool. Uh, yeah, I think what I was saying about the cheats is that I feel like anytime I've, I've tried to do it, I've tried to look for an easy way to identify something like a wine or a beer if I'm tasting blind, but I've I've never really thought about the compounds themselves behind it. Yeah,
3: definitely. And once, yeah, I've um, been lucky to work with some spirits brands, like some rum brands and things and um, getting to know rum. If you know whiskey and bourbon, you can actually get into aged rums quite quickly. It's, um, they're definitely analogous because what are they picking up their flavors from i mean so much of it is from the aging in the barrels and those are the same flavor compounds you know you, you might have a slightly different distillate but um really once you know how to taste one it's not too hard to cross over into the other so
1: so you know when you've reached your levels like advanced cistern and and you know you you can let's say you're a master taster um what what are the next steps? I mean, do you enjoy <laughs> tasting? Are you always analyzing? Um, do you, do you still get new new experiences?
4: Yeah, I think it's
3: something um, that we put too much stress on. Like, I people are always like, "Oh, can you turn it off?" Like, and I'm not constantly analyzing things for <laughs> faults. You know, I think thinking about tasting makes it way more enjoyable. Um, there's a <laughs> a passage in there I'm writing about. I kind of told this omakase chef, like, I would love to try something new. My husband and I are huge sushi fans. Like we've tried a lot. If there's anything and he gives us crab brain, which I would not say is um, the most pleasant flavor memory I have. It was very, it was like ground up walnut shell and like old seaweed that was in a barn or something kind of flavor (laughs) Um, but uh I was like yeah there you go he totally gave me a new flavor experience that I have never tried I don't know that I will try it again um but I kind of think once you start thinking about collecting flavors like that or just being more thoughtful about what you're tasting it kind of opens the world up a lot like it's, you know if we if someone looked out their window and said like oh the sky looks green like you would send them to the hospital but if someone drank red wine and said oh this tastes like diet coke to me you'd kind of be like oh okay I don't really know like we don't we don't put the same emphasis on being able to describe what we taste and smell as like what we see or music that we hear um I think it should be given a little more uh a little more love a little more love for the tasting world
1: that, that's a great great point and i'm i'm really enjoying i'm just starting to browse through the book but um this is a book that i'm going to read cover to cover completely <laughs> and um so so M for you uh you know with your studies and everything i mean how, how deep do you go with with smell and and senses i mean because you're also an entertainer with what you do with with points and panels
4: i try yeah um With Actually, I do a lot of off-flavor visual beer education, so that's really helpful because some people just don't, like, they're blind to it, or the science of it can really confuse your senses. Like, when I was learning about diacetyl, which is that movie theater butter, popcorn, toffee, caramel, butterscotch um, flavor that some beers get, um, I, like, really struggled with the science of it until I drew it, and then I was, like, oh okay I see where this does this and then the like reactions and whatnot and how it's created and so I try to do there's off-flavor training for almost or uh excuse me visual beer education sheets for every master because the master cicerone you got to learn a lot of different off flavors like I don't even remember how many there are I want to say there's like 20 Mandy do you remember I was gonna say 27 yeah I think 25 or 30 it was a lot and so yeah, what is damascadone? Uh what is you know, how does that show up in beers and what does it smell and taste like? I still, for the life of me, can't get damaskenone. Um I always think it tastes like tinned cranberry juice from spring break. That's like <laughs> that's the and that's a really fun part about beer uh tasting or any tasting in general is the nostalgia and the memory.
1: But then isn't that of- very personal? Like if you say
4: it can be, yeah, of course.
1: Tin cranberry juice from s- spring break, does that mean it's been sitting in your pack all day? <laughs> and then what brand is it? Yeah,
4: it's like <laughs> yeah. frat house is, cranberry It's juice. not
1: like Lakewood <laughs> that's like so tart that it kills your acidophilus or something.
4: It's the. Uh, it's definitely that like tin... Where you like poke it on the side and it's ocean spray. Mm-hmm. I get really esoteric and weird with my tasting notes, so much so that when I took the master cicerone exam, I got knocked because they were like, You're relying too much on your own personal experiences. And this doesn't help anyone. Well, and so that, I was that's like my criticism oh, okay. often yeah. of,
1: of some people's descriptors, like there's a whole generation that was talking about Jolly Ranchers and beer and I First of all, I've never had Jolly Rancher, and I, I don't identify with anything. And I, I always want people to go a little beyond that.
4: It is diff Yeah. So when I do, I have to remember. So actually, um, this is very recently, but the majority of my Instagram followers are outside of America. So they're oh, not American. So cool. Yeah. Uh, and that's the majority. So I, when I now make posts, I need to remember when I talk about foods, like what's a graham cracker? You know, like if I live somewhere else, like, I don't know it. And then same thing with when I travel different places and they talk, I've I've judged in Australia and I got a beer that tasted like a Tootsie Roll pop. <laughs> and I tried to explain that to them. And they all just looked at me like I was there. I was like, oh, that's a food you don't. Oh, okay. So I can't, rely on stuff so when nostalgia is really cool for your own and and also tasting is subjective so like mandy gets tin you know cranberry juice at spring break in a friend house i probably wouldn't get that we didn't have fraternities and sororities at my hippie college um but it's cool to like you get to learn more about the person when they talk about stuff so like I'm I'm Uh, uh, yeah it's it's... that's like um the
3: one of the coffee tasters in my book she was like training someone I believe he was Russian but it could have been Africa um and he kept saying oh this is a lala berry lala berry and so finally she didn't want to like call him out in front of everyone who's getting trained but finally she was like okay you got to show me a picture of a lala berry like I do not understand and it literally was just what they call an American in America we call a blueberry like same fruit and like blueberry was also on the tasting wheel you know so it's like to your point about Australia like they probably have, I mean, Tim Tam is not the same, but they probably have some kind of candy that you would be speaking the same language. But we just don't even, yeah. we don't always know how to like meet each other across culture, even though we're mm-hmm. trying to say the same thing. So it is like just a really interesting, like I said, there's only so many compounds, but across the world, we have a million different ways to describe so the same exactly Same
1: compounds, were. different different words, different terms.
3: Yeah, and different cultures. Wait,
1: back to M. <laughs> so wait, the Tootsie Roll Pop. So how did these, mm-hmm. these people from another country, what did you figure out that they were talking about?
4: Well, it was it, the beer had that kind of like that the chocolate Tootsie Roll pop where it has that kind of chocolate sweetness, but it was kind of tart. I think it was like an Oud Bruin or a Flanders Red, so it would have that sour chocolatey flavor that sometimes uh, Oud Bruins have. And I got the flavor of Tootsie Roll. And then when I explained it to them, they all looked at me and I went, oh, I, so I was like, okay, hold on. Let me rethink about, and then they, we would, but then I would, I taught them about something. Same thing. <laughs> they would be like, oh, this tastes like a cherry ripe. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And then I found out it's the best candy bar in the whole wide world. It's mm-hmm. essentially a cherry mounds bar. Um, It is the best. And so certain things, they describe certain foods. And then, or certain flavors and I would believe, i and you just you have to um pipe up and ask you know you have to say excuse me, hold on a second I don't what is that and then you get to learn and that's the fun part about tasting with other people um I went to South Africa and judged the African beer cup, and that was the same there would, I would have to remember to kind of check my American food and you know flavor um not bias but like you know check it at the door when we're talking about something because. Our foods are different, you know we all speak English and whatnot for the most part, but there were judges from Spain um, there were judges from all over the world and so when you're judging with a in a worldwide um group, it's really fun to you learn so much about different flavors because they pick up stuff that you don't um, and it's I love it I love judging beer competitions it's It's so much fun well,
1: for for both of you guys what are like what's the typical format for judging? in a serious beer competition? Are there numbers? Are they the same categories? Or are, are they different in, in when they're run by different people?
3: In beer, I mean, I'll let you speak to outside the U.S. after this, but um, we're actually quite lucky in beer. I didn't realize this until I started uh, branching out to judge other things. Um, but the BJCP is pretty much depending, most competitions are pretty much based on the official BJCP score sheet um there's things like i can't remember the name of it, Fobab, is that what it's called in chicago the festival they, of wood and barrel age beer yeah where yeah. it's a little shifted because obviously they're going to put more weight on things like barrel character um but for the most part it's pretty consistent and judges are pretty used to seeing a score sheet like that where when you're judging something like sake <sighs> it's just like kind of whatever the um competitive competition like wants you to talk about they'll tell you in the intro but there's not like um scored categories you know beer it's very like appearance rating out of x smell rating out of you know a, a higher weight or aroma flavor things like that off flavor overall match to style Wait,
1: mandy how many different types of beverages have you judged
3: i haven't always been a judge um sometimes i was just observing but i've been a judge and for beer, sake, and then cocktail competitions, which is totally different. And also doesn't have a very good score sheet, um, consistent score sheet. So, uh, and do, do people like internationally, are you looking at something similar to the BJCP score sheet?
4: Uh, in Central and South America, the BJCP is incredibly popular. So they use the BJ, they don't use the score sheet. There's actually a really great, I don't remember who invented it. And I am, it's really good software. Uh, they have essentially the BJCP software uh, it's on a website and then you fill it out that way. And so everything is all done on computers and it's really good software. Um, a lot of competitions in Central and South America use that. Uh, most uh the only, I judge in Australia and they use the Brewers Association guidelines, which is for world beer cup and um the uh, great American beer festival. And so there's only really two that there's been some ones I've done where they're like kind of different, but, and then there's a different way to fill out the form. Sometimes they use the BJCP, sometimes software, sometimes it's, uh, I've judged in Belgium where you fill out a form and you don't talk about the beer. Sometimes you talk about it with judges, the people next to you. Sometimes you don't. The one in Belgium everyone scored and then you only talked about this is what's getting the gold this is what's getting the silver this is what's getting the bronze are we cool with that oh wow yeah um which was actually kind of in uh the african beer cup oh actually one of the craziest judging experience i had was in oregon they record you talking and wow. then they give the entire recording to everyone who entered so you know what they're talking about the beer you, I kind of like that. Yeah, I, I like that loved too. it, and I told yeah. I told the international judging. There's like a Facebook group, and I t- and they were all horrified because there's no you can kind of figure out who's who. who yeah, um, but it also it keeps um, it keeps your discussions really nice and friendly because you know you're being recorded. Not that I've ever had any competition where there's ever been like a fight or whatever. Uh, but there's no writing when you judge. Some competitions, like I have a really bad right wrist. I'm an artist, so like my wrist takes a beating, and like there are days when you you have to write all day, and your wrist just my wrist kills. And the Oregon one was I don't have to write at all. I have to write some notes just to remember, and then they hit record, and you're like, all right, let's talk about number seven five two seven. Uh, I really liked this one. I thought it was really nice, and then. But it was really, really transparent—the most transparent competition—and I loved every moment of it. Yeah, um,
3: and that's such good feedback for the brewers. As and well. you
4: get to hear everyone's feedback instead of a messy sheet where you can't read anything. Like I've—I've I've seen my own handwriting. A doctor once told me I had bad handwriting, <laughs> so I have terrible handwriting. Um, there is a reason my font, my the my font is digitized for all my comics because my handwriting is atrocious. So. Yeah, no, the, I loved the transparency of that. And I wish that more competitions would do that.
3: The GABF score sheet's relatively similar to BJCP though.
4: Yeah, it's like a, it's more of you tick boxes. So like it's, uh, instead of out of a certain number, because the BJCPs for people who don't know, you score out of 50. So X amount goes to Aroma. It's 20 for Taste, I think 12 for uh, Aroma, three for a Visual. Um, the B the BA is very it's you know, you kind of mark like, oh, this was dark, this had good foam retention. You kind of like tick more boxes than write. Uh the BJCP really makes you write a lot because when you're judging a homework competition, you need to tell people what's wrong with it and how to fix it. Which so you gotta know when you're judging, you gotta be like, Wow, this was really astringent. What was your sp- sparge temperature? Was it above 170? Because unless you're brewing a lambic shouldn't be that way. So it's really, oh, you got a lot of DMS. Did you cover it? Did you boil it long enough? And you have to give people really good constructive feedback. Uh, and the BJCP really makes you think when you judge. Uh, it's not just like, oh, I like that.
3: <laughs> yeah. And I think that's really a great thing about beer is that there is such a strong homebrewing culture because what things like spirits competitions and like sake, because there's not a lot of people who came up, you know, making it as a hobby or have an organization like the BA or the, like the BJCP that thinks about homebrewing it, it it ends up being a lot more like was this good overall is like the score the score sheet says there's like not like these categories and like ways to think about improvement um and I yeah the wow. you know the more score sheets I saw and collected for the book there's a whole chapter about judging by taste and uh I was just like wow I'm so lucky that I came up through beer wow. I,
4: I really like we're, where, yeah we're organized people I really
1: like where you guys are going with this Um, We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions
2: Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey,
1: hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org donate. So we're talking with Mandy Naglich, the author of How to Taste, and M. Soder of Pints and Panels. So, guys, we're having a lively conversation. I did not think about the BJCP judging and that that it's meant to help homebrewers learn, and that was really cool. Um, thanks for going in that direction. I want to go back to, to, to Mandy's book, How to Taste. Um, there's one chapter I'm looking at, chapter 8. One plus one makes seven put mustard in your brownie. So, um, um, Mandy, you've been talking to a lot of different people in, in different areas like cheese. And here you're talking to someone, uh, who's a mustard sommelier. Um, how did you go down that path? Like, and how did you find this guy, Chef Brandon Collins?
3: So, yeah, I think at the outside of the book, I really wanted to find like specialists in every, um, every specialty there could be you know I did talk to some water psalms they're not really included in the book but like really I wanted to go as far out as I could um and so yeah that's how I found Brandon who is just a mustard truly you know went and trained tasting mustard seeds grading them learning about every kind of mustard for I think he was totally immersed for six months in France um But he uh, works for May, which is a mustard company that specializes in Dijon. Um, And yeah, he totally shocked me with his depth of mustard pairing knowledge and convinced me to make those mustard brownies, which I then tested on (laughs) many of my unsuspecting friends and colleagues. And they all loved them, which was, you know, I thought I was being tricked just because I heard it from him. And I was like, oh, I'm sure... My brain is just telling me this tastes good because he told me it would. But then blind tasting people, I did plain brownies, brownies with coffee and brownies with mustard. And many people picked the mustard brownies as their favorite. Um, That vinegar just brightens up your chocolate a little bit. If you like a little bit of a lighter dessert, uh, people really gravitated toward them. So I highly recommend.
1: (laughs) I can see that just thinking of it as an ingredient ingredient. Based,
3: yeah, it's just two right? tablespoons of mustard for a batch. You know, it's nothing like you know they're not mustard-forward brownies, but it's just that little bit of brightness. And
1: it's it's not like yellow, yellow-dyed yellow mustard. No,
3: they did look a little bit lighter in color. That I was wor- I was worried that people uh, would suspect something, but not enough.
1: <laughs> oh, you didn't tell people?
3: No, I just told them I put them in three different colored uh, like cupcake holders and had people do blind tasting. Um, to pick their favorite.
1: Oh, wow. Well, also in that chapter, um, so like, let's talk about how you talk about beer versus food. So you're using, there's terms here like salty, you know, umami, um, sweet. Uh, How are those terms different from, or similar to what you would use when you talk about beer?
3: Yeah, I think in that chapter, I really wanted to go clinical and scientific as far as like what has actually been proven about flavor interactions i think um a lot of what we learn about pairing can be quite esoteric and i mean actually em you're the perfect person to talk to this like can you really pair office characters with a beer or is that more on like you know the ethos of the beer which i think is a great way to pair but not like necessarily a scientific um you know, scientifically proven pairing, which I don't there, think yeah. every pairing needs to be.
4: There's no wrong answers really. Mm-hmm. Um when, when you're doing beer and food pairing, um, uh, there are wrong answers, like don't drink a double IPA and a salmon, because that'll be really bad. Uh the worst pairing I've ever had is nachos and Cezanne. Because <laughs> spiciness spiciness fights phenols. Mm-hmm. It's not a great you you're like, oh wow, this will be really refreshing, and you're like, ah, oh, it's bad. Um, but it also, that's subjective too, because certain food compounds people like, Uh like one of the things people really like to do is pair a really hot curry with really hoppy stuff because the hop bitterness will accentuate the spice. Um, I don't like that. I don't want my food to be hoppier or more, um, spicy. I like spicy food, but I'm not like my husband who likes to sweat when he eats, so I always pair things. I usually, I love contrasting flavors. I love salty sweet. I also like creating perfect bites. So when you're thinking of the, you know, salty, sweet, umami, sour, like how can I get all of those into one bite? I call it the complete bite. Um, that's a good way to do, you know, that just match, match intensities and experiment. There's no, if you're like, I don't know if this will work. I always tell people just, try it what you know what's holding you beer is an accessible and usually pretty inexpensive thing to get so if you're interested in beer and food pairings just just try it you know maybe it'll be really good I, one of the most weird accidental is a new england ipa and a chocolate chip cookie is my favorite pairing because it was an accidental i was eating a cookie and drinking a nipa and i was like wow this is really good it tastes like one of those terry's chocolate oranges you get it uh, Christmas time mm-hmm. once you break. So,
3: Yeah, I love I like a chocolate chip cookie and a Brett IPA, which there aren't as many as there used to be. But
4: uh, that, that was would be favorite. good too. There's a, yeah, chocolate chip cookie is like a really, because there's so many things you can do with it. Sweets and desserts. Um, I would love to do a beer dinner where it's just one beer style. Like, all right, everything's dark mild. And show people, it. hey- You know, you can do three completely different foods with the same beer, beer style, uh, and make this really wonderful dinner. Uh, You don't have to serve imperial stouts and brownies for dessert. You can do, you know, you could serve a pilsner with dessert.
1: Maybe we Uh, could have a a brownie with with mustard seeds. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I I like that, Mandy. Um, So, yeah, you guys want to take a stab at at a dark mild pairing, three dishes? Oh, boy. And what Popless. what would the beer be too um, Let, let's mention you guys mentioned a couple ipas M- mention a couple of brands of beer as well
4: they're dark, not uh, the dark mild is i mean it's up and coming but they're who makes a dark mild i know i i work part-time at fox farm and we make a dark mild called tiddly um which is very nice and i actually think for dessert dark mild would be really nice with some kind of like chocolate bread pudding or a or a brownie or even I mean if you go like a cookie sand, like an ice cream cookie sandwich I usually don't go too fancy with my pairings I go very like what do you have in your home like we're not you know you could yeah we're not having beef wellington here although (laughs) yeah I would say dark mile I think Coney Island
3: I don't know if they still make one they were making one for a little bit there uh that would reach you in New York at least at Coney Island but um I also think, like you said, not too fancy. I honestly think it's there's not a lot of intensity to a dark mild, so almost yeah. something like shortbread cookie-ish, like a shortbread mm, cookie ice cream would be sandwich, really good. or like speculos, Maybe add some like uh, some spices in there where dark mild doesn't really have that, um, but nothing
4: too intense. And um, then I think for like an appetizer, something like a like chicken skewer or some kind of lower like. Less intense because even though a dark mild is dark, you have to remember the alcohol is probably three and a half percent. The carbonation is usually on the lower side. Uh, a lot of them are nitrogenated. So you're not going to have any kind of what I call that mouth napkin, that that scrubbing bubbles that carbonation does to lift the fat away. Um, it's actually... Yeah. Would you? Was there another appetizer you could think of?
3: I was. I was going to say almost honestly. I think breakfast stuff is usually pretty nice with a dark mile, Ooh, like almost yeah. like a savory French toast or something. Not oh, nothing like, too yeah. intense. Um, but yeah, like you get the bready stuff going on. Obviously, it's such a malt forward beard. Um, be
0: really but like nice. you said,
3: I mean, we're looking like tofu things like you know very light Mm -hmm. intensity even like a vegetable can be too intense for a dark mild just because it has those strong vegetable flavors that can definitely overpower
1: it i I like where you guys are going with this just because i i feel that way when when, you guys can tell me the science um of of food and beer pairings but i always feel like i want to taste the beer and and the food and somehow together in my mouth they they make something different So like the simple shortbread, simple chicken skewer, simple savory French toast. I can see that. Um, Is there a science of of what happens in your mouth when 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 the beer and the food go together?
3: It's funny, M mentioned. I mean, and that's like the one pairing kind of rule that I give that I think is the only real rule when it comes to pairing is like you have to match intensities. If one side of the pairing is too intense, you'll never get that experience of things coming together because one will just overpower. The other you know like a very very strong blue cheese is going to just completely erase um a dark mild from your mouth something like that uh but yeah i don't i don't think there's really a science uh, it's a lot of testing and that's something interesting about beer you know for 10 different breweries making 10 different dark milds every pairing is going to work a little bit differently because every beer is a little
1: bit different you know just talking about like where craft beer is and and, and tasting knowledge and everything It seems like just in in 30 years that I've been in the business, you guys are at such a high level and and the resources available to you and and the the trainings and, and, and certificate programs are unbelievable. Does anyone ever come up to you and say, wow, I just can't believe how much knowledge you guys have?
4: I wish <laughs> I, a lady. A, I gave, I give a lot of library talks. I really love doing local library talks. So I was at Cheshire, which is like uh Cheshire, Connecticut, which is like 20 minutes from my house. And a woman came up to me and she goes, how do you know so much about beer? And I always, my joke is I don't know anything about anything else. <laughs> like, don't ask me what like two plus five is. It's probably like what, eight? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know most things, but I, I do know, I know a fair amount about beer and I also want to make sure that when I give talks, that um beer has a, a when you Google a lot of things in beer, a lot of times you get the wrong answer. There are a lot of websites that give a fair amount of misinformation, which really stressed me out. And that's another reason why I started Pints and Panels. And it's to make sure that when you're learning about beer and people really want to learn, um they're getting the most accurate information. And then if they see something on my website, I'm always very much like, please tell me if I'm wrong um, because I you know, want to make sure that I fix it.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's a, an incredible amount of misinformation out there about everything. Um, but to, to your point, I think people shouldn't be afraid as long as they do it kindly and with sources to point out when things are wrong because- generally everyone just
1: wants correct uh information out there. You know, Mandy, I just want to tell you how really cool this book is. <laughs> um it's not what I expected and that's what I mean. Like I just feel like I was just thinking back to Garrett Oliver's first book, which I'm blanking on the title where he did beer and food pairings. And the Brewmaster's,
3: Brewmaster's Table Master's Brewmaster's Table, table.
1: And in our my lifetime almost for, as if and I have yeah of course you know it. and and I was when you mentioned you said blue cheese and I thought Garrett Oliver because there's one fallback whenever we have a conversation about beer and food pairings the only thing I can ever remember is well in Garrett Oliver's book he had like a a, a good barley wine with with a good stilton blue cheese and um mm-hmm. so going back he to, loves Stilton. you gotta love He's it but it's like going stilton. back to that book i love Stilton. like it's when that book came out that was like the book of of beer and food pairing and and recipes in in my world um so <laughs> building on you know whatever the the backs of our founders or whatever i mean does are you guys like amazed just how far things have come, or do you feel like that um we could the garrett's book has a lot of information I mean is that the only book I need to have for beer and food pairing I mean that's what I'm trying to get at is how far can we go with this?
3: I think M's Instagram account. I mean, uh, there's a lot of great stuff in Garrett's book. He does lean, like you said, Stilton. He leans a bit fancy, I would say. You know, foie gras is not always the first thing we think about pairing <laughs> with something like beer. He does love duck.
4: He's a big duck. <laughs> yeah. He does love fancy. Exactly. <laughs> it's a fancy book. It's a great book, though. Yeah, um, it's a great way to elevate yeah. beer for sure. But um, maybe not every day. I can't be eating duck all the time. Uh, I would eat duck all the time if I could, but I don't. Uh, But yeah, no, it's beer pairings are all about, again, experimentation. Um, Yeah, I have a beer and food pairing section of my second book, Corée for Craft Beer, that's on the smaller side, but that teaches you about matching intensities, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner pairings, you know, certain stuff. And yeah, I've done a ton of different pairings of beer. I just did beer and fancy food, actually, last week because uh, i think i saw a copy of of i have a copy of brewmaster's table in my living room and i was like fancy food um but i came up with my own so parents. what were your fancy food bearings? there was um like well one of the garrett's big ones that is really thought uh, is a uh, lobster and ood brewing
1: um i never would have so thought that like
4: i know and it's i would i would I, to me that actually is i'm not a big i don't know if i've I think I've, I've tried it out before. Cause I must have, I'm not a big lobster in the shell. I don't want eyes looking at me when I eat something. So um, I, but I must've tried it with like a lobster tail or whatnot. Um, but that's one of his big pairings. I did like beef, King crab legs and whipped beer. I'm trying to think of what uh, it was like beef Wellington. There was uh, what, what, what else was there? I don't even remember. There's, when, this is what happens when you post I was say, I remember day. the beef
3: wellington one because i was like because i oh yeah it's hard to draw beef wellington because it's not you know always apparent from the outside what it, it was is a, and I was like, oh yeah I, I can
4: tell i had tried yeah they're like kobe beef uh peking duck and Ma in my box was the one that i was like out of all of those i want that uh or like a, a foie gras and um and quad and quad caviar and goza so there, yeah, truffle, risotto, and Cezanne. I got to say, I'm a, a caviar and uh, Belgian golden strong
3: girl. Ooh. But we
4: got to try it. We'll try I wanted, I wanted salt, more salt with my caviar. Extra little salt balls with, with Goza just sounded nice. And and Goza's were, like, very refreshing and clean. And, yeah. Mm. Wow.
1: You guys, this this is, I, I, to our listeners out there, you got to get Mandy Naglitz how to taste book you got to definitely keep up with all the m Sauter's books and um good last question each of you are gonna ask the other one question and then we'll close out can be about anything
4: um mandy what when uh what events are you what's the full gamut of where people can see you did did you already talk about that but i want you to talk about it again so people don't i was
3: gonna say i I was gonna say what we should say is just everyone who's close by make the, the trek up to uh um, RJ Julia and see us together on July 12th in in Middletown at 5. PM. I'm lucky to have a team that's maintaining the book events part of my website, but I know it's all East coast for now until August. Uh, and then West coast will be hitting that in September, LA, Seattle, Portland.
1: What what day is it in Middletown, Connecticut?
4: July 12th at 5. PM. I think it's a Wednesday. That's
1: going to be happening.
4: (laughs) Beer and chocolate.
1: And then Mandy, do you have a question for, um,
3: Um, yeah. What's, uh, what was the most difficult pairing request you've had?
4: Oh gosh. Um, a lot of them, I guess for infographics it's stuff I've never watched before. So I have to like lean, like I've, I don't want, I've never watched Secession. So people are like Secession characters. And I was like, wow, that'd be really cool. I've never seen that show. Um, (laughs) but I also, but that's a fun way to like, lean on people who are popular who like that stuff and then I'm trying to think about like beer and foods um I don't know I had a really interesting pairing with a uh, I went to a sausage dinner with Josh Bernstein for his uh second edition of his book and they did a bunch of different pairings uh with sausages and that was really cool and there was a monkfish sausage which was unique Yeah, as I said, the texture. Yeah, the texture was really – it was very spongy. It was the spongiest sausage I've ever eaten. Um, But the beers that they had pairing with them were really cool. It was just – it's fun to, you know, think about something like a sausage and then elevate it and then pair a beer with it. So.
1: That's really cool. You guys have been great. And a big shout-out again, Mandy Naglich, how to taste. And just on the back it says – I mean, I actually first might have interviewed you when you won the National Homebrew Competition Gold Medal. Um, I knew that you were an advanced cicerone, did not know you were a certified cider professional. And you've also the
3: first time I won or the second time I got a glass. I don't know.
1: Leave- <laughs> I don't know if it's first or second. I can't keep up with you. And and she's also earned the certificate of W S E T level one spirit. So
3: Well, that's the galley of the book, because yeah, I finished the full diploma on spirits now. I was like, I gotta get this done before the book comes out. So well,
1: you, you're a rock star. You're you're really like every time I talk to you, you're at the next level. And um, this book is is going to be one of my favorite reads. And I'm definitely going to keep up with M. Sauter's books too. I got, I have the Hooray, and I I have to get that 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 cover too. So you guys are awesome. Just want to say thank you so much, Mandy. Yeah. Thank you so much, M. Big shout-out to Matt Patterson, our engineer tonight. I'm Jimmy Carboni, and we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.